I'm excited, Sarah. You've been like training. You're like an ultra marathoner. You're like sucking down gel packs, listening to audiobooks. <laughs> I mean, I guess the Jen, Jennifer Prokop equivalent of that is sitting at my kitchen table working on puzzles. <laughs> It's totally the same thing as running an ultra marathon. You know, if ultra marathoning romance novels is is our superpower. It is fine. I accept that. I accept this whole entire analogy. I mean, the amount of work we do on romance novels, you would think that like we would burn more calories. <laughs> I'm told the brain is a muscle. <laughs> yes. Listen, you're not going to listen for a minute because I'm going to I'm going to say something and you're just going to be quiet, which is I know it's ridiculous to brag about it to our listeners. But of course, I've read Daring the Duke already because I'm special and it's amazing. And you are special. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. It's so effing good that I. OK, this isn't about you. It kind of is. But pretend it's not. Listeners, you know, when you're listening, you like read a book that's so good, you have to go back and like reread the entire backlist oh, of an author. I did that. I went all the way back to fucking 11. Like I'd read oh, nine and 10 recently, but I've been Simon. listening to them. I've been listening to them while I puzzle. I listen. I mean, how many books is that I've listened to since quarantine times? It's what, 11? It's a lot. No, 10 of them because you haven't listened to to Daring. So but I've been soon. I've been listening to and and after with Never Judge a Lady from by her cover, we switched to a new narrator. And we are really lucky and super excited to have that narrator on a faded mates with us today. I'm so excited. I have never interacted with Justine. So it's gonna be really cool. We're gonna do it by video. We're gonna see her face and hear her real voice. Her I mean, presumably British voice. Well, <laughs> here's the thing, y'all. When I, I took a break from your backlist because Justine also recorded The Prince of Broadway, which everyone knows is like my favorite romance last year. And I... I wonder if she's the action, the new narrator. And I, I don't know because I haven't... Li- I'm listening to way more audiobooks now, but um, because of quarantine and, um, and puzzles and gel packs. <laughs> and... <laughs> I was so fascinated. I was like, that's going to be real effing weird for Prince of Broadway to be with a British accent. And it's not. It's American. We have so many questions and we're about to get them all answered. We asked you guys for questions on the OSRBC Facebook page. We will, if you're not on that Facebook page, Wednesdays, there's a discussion, uh, question and a post about the Wednesday release. So you should join us over there. We'll put links in show notes. Um, But we asked readers, audio readers there for questions for Justine. Um, We've got questions for Justine. It's going to be awesome. We're super excited. And at the end of this very podcast, uh, you will be able to listen early, two weeks early, to the first two chapters of Daring and the Duke. So um, be prepared uh, to be left hanging, although I don't remember the end of chapter two of Daring and the Duke, so maybe it's just a, like, normal end of a chapter. Sure, because that's totally your brand, Sarah. Uh, this chapter ended. They were at, like, the store or something. Who just, knows? just put the book down. It's fine. <laughs> 
Um, anyway, Daring in the Duke is coming. It is uh, this day that you are that we are releasing this podcast is June seventeenth. Daring in the Duke is out June thirtieth. Pre-order it wherever you get your favorite books from your favorite bookstore, or um, we'll also put no put links obviously in show notes to all the audiobook stores. Um, thank you all so much for listening, um, and we hope you love this conversation with one of the preeminent romance narrators out there should we say welcome to faded mates <laughs> did we do that i can't remember let's do it welcome to faded mates everyone i'm sarah mclean i write romance novels and i read romance novels i'm jennifer prokop i uh read listen to and critique romance novels and i'm super excited about what you're gonna hear when i told the old school romance book club that she was coming on the podcast Half of it just blew up with how much they love her. Welcome, Justine. Thank you. What a pleasure to be on board. <laughs> we are, I especially am so happy to meet you, to meet you, to see your face, to hear your voice in real life. I, I feel like I know you, but I'm embarrassed at the same time. I'm like, I really know you. <laughs> I, I know. Since last night, Justine knows my books probably better than anyone in the whole world. <laughs> Like you've been really you've been in it. Yeah. And Jen has Jen has has called me on some of the things that you have clearly noticed about my ro- my writing tells. Oh yeah. I I have like a I had like the full like laundry list of things I was like, okay, so you say the word forever a lot. <laughs> like there's a lot of these like moments where like a character thinks like forever. And I was like, is this that Sarah is like a Sarah emphasis or a Justine emphasis? Drag me. Yeah. Well, that's what these books, in fact, are about, Sarah, forever, so it's fine. It's true. So, okay, let's do a, well, let's, let's, you know, be professional. Um, I'm pulling up, I'm, Justine, I should have had your bio in front of me before. (laughs) Jen probably does. She's the organized one of the, of the team. First of all, tell us, Justine, how you're doing. It's quarantine or coronavirus or what's going on there. Are you well? Uh, yes, uh, we're well. Um, we're, we're doing very well, kind of weathering the storm. That I think the big shock, I mean, apart from adjusting to living inside your house and um, having family members with you all the time. I have one girlfriend who's a shrink, and she's part of our book club, and she says, no matter what, she said, you'll think it's them, you'll think it's your husband, you'll think it's your children. It's not. It's the coronavirus. So just take a deep breath. <laughs> Exactly. You know, no, you'll get get through it. Um, But I'm thrilled. I mean, I guess the good side of it is you kind of have to reevaluate where you're where you stand. One of my big panicky moments, which sounds terribly self-involved, was books. I thought, how am I going to get books and hard physical copies of books? Um, So there are a bunch of local bookstores that were dying on the vine, and you could go to their website, and they said, please, you know, order a book, keep us in business. But what was very cool is, you know, you could bike along, walk along, and it was like a whole FBI, CIA, at least that was where my actressy mind went. I was like, oh, you knock on the glass, someone comes, you know, you say your name, you hide, you pretend you're not exchanging anything, and then (laughs) this little bag with books comes out. Um, So that, I enjoyed that theatrical part, but it's certainly, um, re- you know, we're all reevaluating our world, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly, and you hope you emerge from the other side still sane. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, 
So to my my readers, you you don't need very much of an introduction. And to romance romance audio listeners, you absolutely don't. But um, let's do one anyway. Uh, Justine Eyre, uh, spelled like spelled like our favorite Jane. Um, <laughs> Jane she, Austen's ready to fight now. <laughs> oh, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Justine Eyre is a. a an award-winning audiobook narrator. Her primary genres are fiction and romance, but her talents range from thrillers to fantasy to young adult and children's titles. Um, You've won eight, she's won eight audiophile earphones awards, three audio awards, and and she's clearly just a darling of romance, and she's certainly my muse. I should tell us, I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to start. Um, by telling the story of when I decided that I needed a new narrator for my books. Um, and they sent me HarperCollins, uh, very generously kind of listened, and then sent me, um, it was, the book was Never Judge a Lady by her cover. And I thought, I need to sort of switch it up. I wanted, I want to find somebody with a little more of an edge. I, at the time, knew that I was going to be writing. I knew, obviously, what the content of Never Judge a Lady was, but I knew that I was going to be moving into sort of a edgier group of um, books. And I had a really mega magnificent narrator before, um, but I knew I needed somebody who could just like give it a little bit of that extra punch. And so Harbor Audio sent me, I don't know, five or six files of voices. And I listened, yours was last, Justine. And I listened to all of them. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. And then I got to you and literally the first sentence of your file, whatever that was. I can't even remember. I was like, this is her. This is her. And it has to be her forever. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I will write a line or I'll write a scene and I'll think like, oh, yeah, Justine's going to do great with that. And then you kind of move forward. So I'm so happy because it will come as a surprise to everyone probably that we have never interacted. Which is Amazing. I know. It's it's absolutely stunning. I was so excited to get your, your first email. I thought, wow, this is amazing. And I love, thank you for giving me the whole behind the scenes process. Because uh, you never know, right? You never quite know. Have you been requested? Are you auditioning cold? Is it the uh, publisher who said, okay, your voice could make a fit? Um, but what I love is I remember this audition because it was your title. And I remember writing and going, that is such an awesome title. <laughs> of course I want but to try also for this. You're, you're a romance. I mean, romance is your is really your sweet spot. Most You do mostly romance. Is that right? You know what's funny? Yes. I had actually had someone ask me that the other day. I do a lot of romance. Um, thank God, because we need more love in the world. Um, but I will kind of do the whole gamut. I will also do mystery and, and thrillers and horrors and literary fiction. And if it's a story, I want to tell it. <laughs> we have lots of questions. We made a list. We had never make Yay. a list. Our, our <laughs> listeners are like, what? <laughs> Usually we just roll up in here and just let it, let it be, let loose. <laughs> but we have so many questions. And I think what's really cool about and we're so excited because... The one thing that, you know, authors get 
so much of the attention for the books, but the reality is, is that when audio readers, and there are so many people who read exclusively in audio, um, and I feel like for them, you are the stars. All the narrators are the stars. I mean, I know people who just won't read unless it's you or unless it's, you know, Rosalind Lander or unless it's Robert Peckoff. And so, um, I, but also at the same time, we never talk about the process of of recording audio or what it is, how an audiobook differs from the the real the the sort of other versions of the book. Yes. So we have lots of questions. Yeah, we do. <laughs> I'm all ears. Um, but I think we should uh, maybe we should start with the process. Like how how do you come to a book to a uh, to a project? Well, I'm I'm a reader on my own time, like a devourer of books, so much so that when I was little, my mother would stop me before going into the bathroom at night and make sure you're not taking that into the bath. You can't bring that in the shower because <laughs> they were so <laughs> often library books, too. <laughs> Our um, people. So I approach it as a voracious reader. Whenever I get a text, it feels like Christmas has come because it's something brand new. And then when I do my first read, um, everything's very filmic for me. And I'm a bit of a slave driver with myself. It used to be back in the day you would you would work a lot with um, engineers and directors and, you know, be a full little studio. But now so much of it are home studio based. Um, so you're on your own. What I love about that is you can keep going. You mm-hmm. don't have to stop because it is like a film, you know. So there's not, oh, it's time for lunch or now we need to take this break. I want to keep going because this is the juicy part. And she just had this crushing revelation. And now this is going to happen. And what's going on next? Mm-hmm. So you can keep, you know, it's the extender, um, the extender version. It's I like going the whole marathon when I'm recording. Oh, but wow. I love. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not like that when I write. So, <laughs> oh, that's amazing because I start off loud and I end loud. And for whatever reason, well, actually, that's not true. Not not whatever reason. I did voice school extensively when I was younger. So that taught me to keep my breath. So at the end of the day, I still sound like, oh. I'm just starting. Um, so it's great for me personally with my mentality of just knuckle down and do it, be in this world. Um, but I will, I am nerdy and I do make notes. And so I love to know if, if he's growly, is he, what does he look like? So that when I'm speaking him or her, I'm channeling this particular person. It's not me. I'm just opening my mouth and grace is coming out or it's devil is speaking and I'm really in them. So I do have to sometimes make, make sure I'm aware of where the mic is because if I'm devil, I might be, you know, hunkering up and really getting into it. And I go, ooh, now the mic's by my ear. <laughs> <laughs> a final book of Sarah's might be 12 or 14 hours, but how much actual recording time goes into that? I mean, is it like pretty much a not like a one cut necessarily, but like what happens if you need to re-record? Is that something you hear? Or you you know, you're like, oh, I can tell I didn't do that right. Like how how much time does it actually take to record a book? That's a great question. So the rule, kind of the golden rule would be two to one. So if you have one hour of completed audio, you're in the studio for two hours. Sometimes it could be less, especially if you're already familiar with the genre, the style, the author, and you're like, you know these characters, you might be in the studio for an hour and a half for one completed hour. Sometimes when I'm listening, you can tell, I can tell that there's been like a like an insert or a repair, maybe it's like at some point it has to go to a producer, right? Yes. So is that something where they would come back and say, 
can you re-record these lines or is this something you hear on your own? Or do you produce yourself? Yeah. So, I mean, you're supposed to deliver as clean a copy as you can. Um, so, you know, I'm always listening and, and whether it'll be the set, the voice didn't sound quite deep enough um, or suddenly she's surprised afterwards and it's written in um, the narrative that she's surprised. And I go, Justine, there was no surprise in her at all. <laughs> you know, so you go back mm-hmm. and redo that. But you're supposed to be quasi-editor as you go along. So you're supposed to fix all those. But then a professional will come in afterwards, listens to the whole thing. And we'll pick up any little, you know, you said dripping and it should have been dropping. And you get carried away as an actor in the moment. And sometimes you might slur a word or you've thrown in something extra. Um, And so there'll be a set of ears at the other end who's definitely listening. And what's amazing with Harper is there's two sets of ears. So, have you know, you have one set of pickups, book goes through again, and then they'll be like, wait a second, there's this as well. (laughs) That's amazing. I think it's probably worth me making a little confession here, too. But for example, I... I don't know if you know this, Justine, but I'm pretty late delivering my manuscripts. <laughs> I knew there were a few time bumps a couple She's times. She's laughing. <laughs> <laughs> so on the one hand, I apologize. <laughs> and also, I think sometimes, you know, I'll make a change and you'll get almost final pass pages. So the way that for readers, for listeners who don't know the kind of process of a book, it goes through third, fourth pass uh, in terms of the pages. So I'll write it and then it'll go through an editing process and then I'll see a typeset and then I'll make changes along the way. And the idea is that you'll continue to make smaller and smaller and smaller changes along the way. Um, And then a copy editor looks at it and, you know, a second line, a proofreader looks at it. And at some point, and I happen to know, you got what are called third pass pages on this book. Um, And then I don't know if you actually made any changes, but like I did a couple of very small word tweaks and I bet you got asked to re-record some lines on this, or maybe not. There were a few. Yes, there were a few that came. I'm trying to think, actually. That's really funny that you say that. I mean, usually by the time we hit, with this particular book, because of, um, we're talking about Daring and the Duke, but because Daring and the Duke was so important, it was so important that I really nail it, there were probably more changes than usual in that back end. And so, you know. Wow. Sorry. I'm sorry. No, I mean, it was, it was such a satisfying, not to give, I'm trying to think, when's the release date? It was such a satisfying, emo- you just felt, oh, it was, I left on a high and. Oh, you, I'm really happy. It was amazing. It was how it was meant to end. I loved Grace from the beginning, though. She was such a cool character. <laughs> well, I'm really thrilled. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you were happy to read it. So, um, So, but that does bring up the question of, you know, this is sort of a a real in the weeds question, but what is your schedule like? I mean, how do you plan? I mean, when you have somebody who's just terrible at their job like me and you know it's coming eventually. (laughs) Well, you know, that's really funny. I think people say I'm a thwarted librarian, too. So I have uh, like one of those massive schools uh, calendars and I will write in what books I'm working on when they're due. uh, And I try to give a little wiggle room. You know, there's never much time, but just a little wiggle room in case something gets bumped along and then everyone's not like dominoes and now, oh, no, everything in the line. Yeah. <laughs> for our listeners, this is probably it's it's a good time for us to to 
list some of the authors that you and, and it's this is not an, an exhaustive list but aside from me you also narrate for uh, Tessa Dare and Laura Lee Gerke Anna Harrington Sabrina Jeffries uh, Josie Kilpatrick Julianne Long Lindsay Sands Scarlett Scott do you do am I wrong do you do Nalini Singh as well yes I do I mean really a lot of the queens of romance. I mean, which doesn't surprise me. I think you're fabulous. So. Oh, thank you. No, I will say it is it is the biggest kick to go into a bookstore or the library and then see an author. I'm like, oh, oh I know them. I mean, I don't, <laughs> but I know their <laughs> I know their world, and I know that you know I've been able to be part of the journey. It feels like um, with creating an audiobook. So that's very exciting from my side too. How do you, um, you, like, there's so many different, like, kind of voices you do, and and it's not like they're, I mean, I don't have, like, words to sort of describe, like, how, is it intonation or pacing, you know, how do you, and then if it is a character that appears in later books, which is really common in, like, Sarah's books, how do you remember, like, sort of a previous voice when you are like so Sophie, for example, you know, appears in her own book, but then, you know, it's her sister's books later on. She keeps coming back. So how do you even remember? Like, you know, do you have an audio file of all your characters? I don't have an audio file um, for most titles. So what I will go by are my notes. And because characters are often so vivid, I will know instantly, oh, it was Gaston or it was such and such. And you're right there with the person. I'll read through my notes. And yes, he's got a squinch and he does this and I, I will recall him. What's harder is when there's tertiary characters who might show up in one book 10 years ago. <laughs> with one line and suddenly you're like oh you feature prominently now <laughs> you know so that that's where I will go back and I will I will go through my audio files and think where are you where are you talking and then I'll listen and then pick that person up but for characters that I really have lived with and and um being in their skin, it's an easier easier thing to pick up but I do use notes for sure and in terms of where voices and things come from I grew up overseas um, in, a, in a third world country, um, and the language that was spoken was not English. So my sister and I, and also this was the time of Betamax. It was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Where you really, there was no, you weren't, you didn't have internet. You didn't have computers. You made your own entertainment. And my parents' friends came from every place um, on, on earth, pretty much every country. And my sister and I, our sport was imitating their voices. Ah. Um, so, you know, we'd come down to dinner as so-and-so. And, -so, and my parents, I mean, I'm sure we were driven absolutely bonky. So <laughs> drive my parents <laughs> mad. But that was where all this sort of started, those characters and voices. And so sometimes I would pull elements of that out for, um, uh, you know, characters that come up in books, although they tend to each be their own characters. So I'm never thinking, oh, I'm casting you as so-and-so. They are their own voice, their own character, but elements might come in from someone that I've met on the street or, um, you know, and I'm always listening to voices. And I'm, I tell my husband all the time, like, did you hear his voice or her voice? Or there'll be... Um, a speech pattern. There was someone we met recently, and when she talked, her eyes would close, 
and she would slow down, but it was like yeah. 30 seconds of her eyes being closed. Before she started? Before she, yeah, but she was talking. She was still talking, and then her eyes would come back open, but it pulled me in, and her cadence was so different. <laughs> I thought, oh, I have to have that in my toolbox because she was so compelling. Oh, I don't know how you gosh. can talk with your eyes closed for that amount of time, but <laughs> my golly, she did it. <laughs> We, when I was, my son was younger, we listened to all of the Harry Potter audiobooks with Jim Dale. And that was sort of, I think, probably the first time I ever was like, oh, I get now why we call it storytelling. Like, this is this amazing experience. But he, and I don't know, I think other people have noticed this, changed the pronunciation of Voldemort from, like, book one to book two. Have you ever been in a situation where you realize, like, you changed the pronunciation of something or maybe an author said, hey, it, I didn't envision the name that way? Like, how do you deal with, I mean, again, sort of that longitudinal memory almost of, like, book to book or series to series? That's also one of my pet peeves. And sometimes uh, a pet peeve for myself in terms of keeping pronunciations clear and where the stress is. Like sometimes um, as a Brit, you might say narration or narrated, right? It's a subtle thing, but it's something that will stick in my ear and it will drive me bonky. Um, um, so f- for me, I do work off notes and hopefully I catch that stuff. It's tough with a character. There was one book many, many moons ago where the lead character, her name could have gone three different ways. And I agonized. And at this point, there really was not dialogue with authors. You couldn't reach out to them. So I agonized, agonized over it. And I went with the most popular pronunciation of the name, which was not how her name was to be pronounced. Mm. (laughs) So there were quite a few pickups for that title. And that was my error for not, you know, just saying, I have to reach the author and ask. (laughs) (laughs) So that does happen. You and I, like like I said earlier, we've never interacted. We've never emailed. We've never talked before. Um, and I I think your your narration of my books is really fabulous. So, um, but I imagine that that's not always that not all authors are just as calm and cool as me. <laughs> yes, and I'm sure, and that is a tricky thing because you're giving up your baby you know, to someone else and trusting, and yet they're their own individual, so they're going to come in colored from their own past and how they perceive the book. Um, It was very interesting because I I heard a speech from um, Cornelia Funke came to town and um, was talking about her her latest book and and talking about the rendition of one of her books into a movie and what a disturbing experience it was for her. And we were all, what? What do you mean? You weren't enthralled? (laughs) And she said, no, because the lead character was doing X and X, and this is not how I wrote the character. And as um, as an um, vocal actor, you go, "Oh my gosh, I hope I never do that." Where the author's like, "No, this was not how I envisioned her or him." There will be differences, but you hope you never go so far out of the box that it's traumatic for the author, um, right? Because these are their babies. Yeah, but at the same time, authors need to understand, I mean, or at least my perception of the text is that I write the book, and then once you set it free, it's, you know. Oh, I love that. See, that's fantastic. So it feels to me like the Justine Eyre um, narrated McLean novels are yours, too. I mean, they're because I do think that the experience of reading it, I mean, Jen has just recently, you know, really done the job. So 
them. But I do feel like reading the book and listening to the book, you're getting a very different experience. Yes. Um, and so that making sure I, I'm so grateful um, that Harper allowed me to select you, um, you know, for what I knew was coming, because it feels like in the in your hands, I I'm I don't worry at all. I mean, I just know that that we're a good match. But um, in the hands of another narrator, that might not have been the case. Um, so I wonder if we could talk a little bit a little bit about the work and the kinds of things that you really look forward to. Like, what are the scenes you really love recording? What are do you gravitate towards certain kinds of books? You know, what are your favorites and least favorites? I mean, is it more difficult, say, to to record a book that's really dense versus, um, you know, something that's really dialogue heavy? I love dialogue. Oh, I love dialogue. <laughs> I mean, me too. <laughs> well, because you get to put those voices to work. I would imagine it, it's more fun. But it's so satisfying. And Sarah, especially with your characters, I have to say, I mean, I come out of the studio. I, A, when I have one of your titles coming up, I beam because I know that there's work involved, but there's no slog. You sit there and you're like, here they are. And then they speak. But also they're funny. I love humor. It's fabulous when you're like, oh, I have to now stop laughing because the characters said this or that and these are witty three-dimensional human beings um, so that's the most rewarding part of this job and discovering stories and being pushed out of my element with some some genres that I might go oh I can never read that on my own time <laughs> but now I'm in the booth with it <laughs> um, so you know expanding me as a as a uh, my own knowledge as a reader I love that um, what can be tough sometimes are books that maybe were written a hundred years ago and there might be place names or pronunciations that are a little little tricky I did one title and um, which actually terrified me because it was science fiction, um, science fiction from almost 100 years ago that was predicted World War One, two. I mean, these scenes, I kept going, are you sure this was not a time traveler? But there'd be mm-hmm. scenes of, you know, uh, French battleships. And so you'd list eight French names and then you'd have nine Russian names and then you're going right into the oh. German and there's nowhere to breathe. <laughs> so those are, you know, the challenging things. But with romance, um, what I love is just existing with these characters. And again, when you work on a series, what's rewarding is you evolve with these characters. Um, you know, it's it's very satisfying. And again, yours, Sarah's, are, these are, are women and men who... No one is a foil for somebody else. They're their own living people. And that's what I love. And they make human mistakes where you go, oh, God, don't do that. And then they do it. And you go, <laughs> but in that situation, <laughs> I probably would, too. And it's just because we're sitting here back as, you know, omniscient. Um, we're gods looking at the story that we go, wait, wait. That's that's not <laughs> accurate. Um, but I love it. It's, it's the most rewarding thing to... Um, Someone once said, when you read or you listen to stories, we take away all those bits of a character and we learn from them, right? So hopefully being in the booth and you as an author, when you're you're absorbing all these stories, hopefully at the end of the day, you emerge a bit of a better person. Stevie, one of Sarah's readers, asked, um, because you do a lot of romance, like, it it was a great, the way she phrased it was really great, which is, is it awkward to record a love scene or is that just another day at the office? Oh, that's so (laughs) fabulous. You know what? It's never awkward because you're there in the moment. 
So all the bits and the body parts and the, and the, this kind of thing. And of course, I've been asked this question by my husband too. He's like, "Oh, so what were you recording tonight?" <laughs> you know? I'm like, "No, no, you don't understand. It stays in the booth." <laughs> It's not coming outside with me. <laughs> um, but yes, so there's no, there's no embarrassment. There's no, I don't feel like I'm a, a fly on the wall. I feel like I'm right there in the midst of it. So you lose yourself in it. There's big emotional moments in any kind of book. And so you as the narrator are really, it's not about like the violence or the bits and pieces or whatever it, of any of those. It's always probably about the emotion, I would imagine. So yes. You know, if it's like a, and I, I would imagine that's also like the pre-reading. So when you know a big emotional moment is coming, regardless of like what that emotion is, is that a little, like, is that a little more taxing for you as a narrator or a reader? Good point. Not on the voice, but probably, that's a really great question. Probably by the end of the day, there are, there. yes, there are scenes, days where you're just wiped out by the end of it because you've gone through that whole arc um, and you've put it all out there on the page and, and really been in the moment. Um, that's how I approach it anyway, because it's, for me, very filmic. So, you know, I find my hands might be really gripped or, or my shoulder. I'm, I'm way more tense in my body with some of these very emotional scenes afterwards um, because I throw myself into them. <laughs> here, Grace, I'm here, too. <laughs> <laughs> But you are an actor. I mean, aside from being a voice actor, I mean, because you are an actor in the work that you do, you're also uh, you've been in movies, you've been in television. Um, so uh, did you trip into voice acting and and book narration or how did how did that come to be? You know, it's interesting. I'm trying to think how many years ago. So I met very close friends of mine were close friends with Scott Brick and he then became a dear friend of mine. But I met him at a party and we were talking and, and you know, as you do, you ask, well, what do you do? And he said, I'm an audiobook narrator. And I said, I'm sorry, you're a what? And then he, and this is way back when things, there was not so many CDs, things were still put out, you know, this is back in the old days. Yeah. Um, and I loved the thought of what he did because as a kid, I, I would relish the moments when my parents would go out for dinner because it meant I would get to read my little sister to sleep. Mm. Oh, mm, well, yeah. nice. Not, nice. Not, not so nice for her, though. She totally was traumatized because... I wouldn't stop. And her eyes, yeah. <laughs> she'd be going to sleep on me and be like, Alexandra, what happened in this last chapter? You've got to stay with me because we're now going to go and do this. <laughs> so, you know, she was a little kid. And she didn't need six or six to ten chapters read to her each night. Anyway, so it all started back then. So talking with Scott, he's the one who really got me into it. He told me how to make um, a demo reel, the kind of things, you know, people were looking for. Um and um, and I sent it into, um, which was then Random House, Dan Musselman, the amazing Dan Musselman at Random House. And they listened to it and they brought me in for an audition. And um, my voice back then, so when, when I was a little, little one, my voice <laughs> tended to be far more like, you know, I was British. So my accent was totally, totally much more plummy and all the rest of it. 
Um, but that doesn't go down in the States so well. <laughs> you suddenly are only, you know, it's like I'm period ready and then that might be it. And you think, well, wait a second, I can do other genres and I'm this and that. <laughs> anyway, so there all the rest of my family's American. They've helped helped correct my <laughs> my English, taught me to drop G's off words, you know, this you don't need to say the D, all these things. But when I went in to read for Random House, they gave me I came in with my own piece and then they gave me two pieces to read for them. And within the first few minutes of doing the American piece, that was when um, Dan very politely was like, well, we actually say it's been here. We don't say it's been. And we do say tomato, <laughs> not tomato. And, you know, a few other things. And I'm, I'm sitting there just shrinking in my chair. And, um, and I left and my husband was shooting 24, um, about five blocks from where um, Random House was, studios were located. And I go and I bang on his trailer and he's like, how was it? How was the audition? And I start crying. He's like, oh. what happened? He's like, I don't think I got it. <laughs> you know, my voice is so. And it was so funny because as an actor, we have auditions all, you know, all the time you're up for stuff. And I don't cry because you're told no. You're kicked in the teeth more than you're accepted. And it's just, you know, part of part of actors. We're a masochist. Something in us keeps we're little rubber dolls and we bounce right back up. We're like, we're here again. But this mattered so much to me that I was really emotional. Anyway, fast forward, and a few months later, they did hire me for The Pirates of Pompeii. It was my very first audiobook ever, and then I've never looked back. Um, and it's the most satisfying. I read. I read amazing yeah. words for a living, right? Yeah, yeah that's pretty it's, cool. It's so cool. Um, and you're just immersed in stories. I'm like, oh, no, I'm reading. It's not just for my own time. It's work. I'm reading. <laughs> I get to say that all the time, too. It's honestly the best. It is. It's the best. How many books do you do a year? I think I'm roughly about between 70 and 80 books a year. Wow. A huge amount. Mine are your favorite, right? <laughs> oh, oh, that went without saying. <laughs> if you're doing 70 or 80 books a year, I mean, okay, so I guess this is twofold is do you record a book in its entirety and then move on to the next one? Or are there times you're recording multiple books at once? No, that's a very good question. That that would be like shooting three movies at one time. And I you think wouldn't I'd, do it, yeah, right? No, you'd lose your sanity and, and not fair to the book because then you're no sure. longer in the world of that. Now, I will do pickups for a title. So let's say I'm working on something, and but then you're in the booth for a short amount of time fixing your mistakes and, and off you go. Um, but no, it's definitely sacred sacred time for each, for each book, for sure. That's pretty amazing. So you're, you could do a, a really record a book in a couple days. Yes. And it's because I'm a taskmaster. And the great thing with home studios is I can only whip myself. There's no one who's like, Justine, I want to stop now. I have a husband, I have a family, a boyfriend who wants to see me so I can work crazy hours. I'm just going to describe this for, for our listeners, but she's sitting in a, Justine is sitting in a very, what looks like a small room. It's like, is it a closet? <laughs> this one was. I have um, I have a couple different studios. In your home? Yes. Yes. So I have a new one that I'm moving into shortly. <laughs> this one, yes, because I just need a little more, without impacting sound, need a little more space. 
I'm going to take, I took a screenshot. You look great. I'm going to send it to you make sure you like it. But um, I will post the screenshot um, in show notes and on Instagram and Twitter so that people can see. Because I think, of course, the moment I saw you, I was like, of course, that's where she is. So I've listened to you. I listened to all of Sarah's books. But then I heard you um, also recorded The Prince of Broadway by Joanna Shoup, which is one of my favorite books. And I listened because I was like, that's going to be weird to listen to her do it in a British accent. And of course, you this is your accent. And so I was fascinated to hear you do like an American accent. And like, I mean, and I guess you've talked about that already. But is it hard to switch back and forth? Or do you try to stack projects so you can sort of stay in one for a while? Or it just doesn't matter? It doesn't matter. Um there are still words that will th- throw me in terms of um, I won't know the American pronunciation and I won't know that there was such a thing as an American pronunciation of the word. So I will come back sometimes when I'm when I'm doing an American title and I'll ask my husband, I'm like, pronounce this for me. <laughs> and he'll say it. He'll say it the way they want it. I'm like, really? Have you always said that word that way? <laughs> So, you know, I'm still learning. And, of course, he teases me relentlessly because of the way I pronounce something. And then he has to go to the Internet by golly and go, oh, you're right. That's how you guys do it. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, it's it's I'm OK with that. And, and I also do books um, in South African accents. That's my mom grew up there and, and Australian. And there was a whole period as a young kid where... My um, my dad refused to send my sister and I to school in Australia because he's like half my family's over there. So I can say this without hurting anybody's feelings. Mm-hmm. But he's like, that is not the voice I want to hear coming from you all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, fa- I'm fascinated by all of this. It's amazing. So one question I think then a lot of uh, again, a lot of readers have is as a woman, how do you. Um, do male voices or men's voices? And um, like, is that like, are there things that are more difficult about dropping your voice into that register or, um, you know, so how does that sort of work? And have you ever and I think related then is have you ever done books with like dual narrators where you do a female voice and someone else does the male voice? And then how do those get married together kind of later on in the process? Good, great questions. Okay, so yes, I have done the female, the female half of uh, you know a dual narration, and so the male narrator and I will always get in touch beforehand, often send each other voice files so that then we know, okay, this is what we're going to do with with each character and then kind of, you know, sidle into that other person's vocal shoes, if vocal cords can wear shoes, um, so that you're on the same page like that. Male voices for me, I do love doing them, but from the beginning, I wanted to make sure they were authentic. I wanted to have deep male, real, you know, sexy male voices. Um, And because of that, my own speaking voice has actually dropped a register. Ah. So about 15 years ago, I was higher <laughs> in my speaking voice than I am now. Uh, and it's really funny because I have um, one of my boys has a very naturally husky voice when he speaks. And um, when I'm a little less hyper, my voice tends to go lower and be a little more husky. And they're like, oh, he's speaking just like you. And I go, no. <laughs> Mine came this way from years in the studio. I don't know what his story is. But, <laughs> but yes, I always wanted to be just to have a male that you really you can envision. You hear that voice and you go, oh, yeah, 
He looks like this. Right. Yep. It's not a, a woman donning male clothing trying to be him. Jen and I were talking about this yesterday. Um, one of the things that I've sort of noticed about the recordings that you've done of my books is, um, you know, because I write families or, you know, whole groups of people who are going to all get their own books, ultimately, each hero, the hero and the hero, less the heroine, but the hero really does end up with a hero, what I refer to as like Justine's hero voice. Not that they're all the same, but like suddenly yeah. they become like low and dark and gravelly. And like all the other men in the book, don't sound quite like the hero. Yes. And I oh and I really love that because I feel like it's a tell, right? It's a tell to the reader. Like now you're getting Ewan's story. And so yes. Ewan is gonna sound like your hero. And yes. is that intentional for you? Do you think about like, oh, I mean, because now by now you've been doing this long enough that you know, like when I put three heroes on three brothers on the page, they're all getting a book. Exactly. <laughs> but this this particular, not to sort of dwell on my books, but this particular series, the middle book, um, which is Brazen and the Beast, um, Beast is such a grunter. He's yeah. so like, and you really, you really nailed it with him. It's great. So, I'm listening to it now. She's that- about to tie him to the mast. <laughs> <laughs> I got. Be right back. <laughs> We'll have Eric put a little bit of the audio of Brazen in so that people can hear Justine's Beast. You know, do you think when you're creating the hero, you know, do you think about that? About are you you sort of you seem to be keenly aware of like that the hero's really the money. <laughs> oh, yes. That, that's exactly. And you know what? That's so funny that you express it like that because it is ex- I, exactly how I approach it. It's very much like a film. So here, here he's the sex stuff. He is the all out. And when you first hear his voice and then his brother might come on, okay, brother's still got to be male and appealing because, and as you said, the brother's probably going to have his own starring role soon. Yeah. So you can't totally make him a weenie. He's not a weenie. <laughs> but yes, there is. It's like that magic sparkle that um, that I try to put in my voice for sure with the hero. Mm. Do you um, do you listen to audio for fun? Uh, I will listen to audio when I'm with the boys um, and it's their stuff. Yeah. For me, mm-hmm. No, because I'm so dying to get into my own book and go at my own pace at the end of the day, you know? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so it's, it's almost like the chef who, who, I'm making sushi, and then you come home, you're like, cheeseburgers. Um, exactly. So <laughs> you just have to have to have a bit of a, of a disassociation with that. But I laugh because my, my littlest one is a voracious, I can't keep up with his appetite for audiobooks. It's always like, oh, please say the library doesn't have that, <laughs> you know, it's available for you. It's not still on hold. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's, if you're a big listener, like, get your hands on those is oh it's like uh, gold. beg borrow and steal for yeah. sure <laughs> justine it is such a joy to have you thank you for coming on the podcast thank you for this, having me what I'm a treat to so to happy see to see your face <laughs> and hear awesome. your voice and and i just i i'm so glad to finally be able to thank you for being so fabulous and doing you know, making them all come to life the way you do. Well, I'm you, so you happy. Wrote them, so I, I'm thrilled to listen. I'm, I'm again. I'm so excited whenever I get one of your manuscripts across my desk. I go, yay! Because oh, you just write, yes, funny, brilliant, humorous, real people who happen to exist back then, but they're real and their journeys <laughs> are so satisfying. And this last book, just oh. 
Yeah, right? It's the killer. <laughs> it's really good. Well, and after this, I think we're going to play the first chapter. Is that right? First two. So Harper Audio has given us early the first two chapters of Justine's recording of Daring and the Duke. So stay tuned after this and you will hear them. Um, and you can pre-order Justine's audiobook. Um, we'll put links in show notes. And Justine, I hope you're ready. I'm doing a girl gang next. There are four women. Oh, I Love and that. <laughs> so get ready. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and we'll be together hopefully for a long time. What a pleasure. I can't wait. Chapter one Bergsey House, seat of the Dukedom of Marwick, the past. There was nothing in the wide world like his laugh. It didn't matter that she was unqualified to speak of the wide world. She'd never strayed far from this enormous manor house tucked into the quiet Essex countryside two days' walk northeast of London, where rolling green hills turned to wheat as autumn crept across the land. It didn't matter that she didn't know the sounds of the city or the smell of the ocean, or that she'd never heard a language other than English or seen a play or listened to an orchestra. It didn't matter that her world had been limited to the 3,000 acres of fertile land, boasting fluffy white sheep and massive hay bales, and a community of people with whom she was not allowed to speak, to whom she was virtually invisible, because she was a secret that was to be kept at all costs. A girl, baptized the heir to the Dukedom of Marwick, swaddled in the rich lace reserved for a long line of dukes, anointed with oils reserved for the most privileged of Bergsey House residents, given a boy's name and title before God, even as the man who was not her father paid servants and priests for silence and falsified documents, and laid plans to replace her mother's bastard daughter with one of his own bastard sons, born on the same day as she, to women who were not his duchess, offering him a single path to a ducal legacy. Theft. Offering that useless girl, the mewling babe in nurse's arms, nothing more than a half-life, full of the aching loneliness that came from a world so large and so small, all at once. And then he'd arrived one year earlier, twelve years old and full of fire and strength and the world beyond, tall and lean and already so clever and cunning and the most beautiful thing she'd ever seen. Blonde hair too long of a bright amber eyes that held a thousand secrets, and a quiet, barely ever heard laugh, so rare that when it came, it felt like a gift. No, there was nothing in the wide world like his laugh. She knew it, even if the wide world was so far beyond her reach, she couldn't even imagine where it began. He could. He loved to tell her about it, which was what he did that afternoon one of their precious stolen moments between the Duke's machinations and manipulations. A thieved day before a night when the man who held their future might return to revel in tormenting his three sons. But today, in that quiet afternoon, while the Duke was away in London, doing whatever it was that Dukes did, the quartet took happiness where they could find it, out on the wild, meandering land that made up the estate. Her favorite place was on the western edge of the land, far enough away from the manor house that it might be forgotten before it could be remembered. A magnificent copse of trees soaring into the sky, lined on one side with a small bubbling stream, 
Blestream than Brooke, if her body were honest, but one that had given her hours, days, weeks of chattering company when she'd been younger, and conversation with the water had been all she could hope for. But here, now, she was not lonely. She was inside the trees, where dappled sunshine flooded the ground where she lay on her back, collapsed after racing across the land, taking great breaths of air, heavy with the scent of wild thyme. He sat next to her, his hip to hers, his own chest rising and falling with heavy breath as he stared down into her face, his ever-lengthening legs stretched past her head. Why do we always come here? I like it here, she said simply, turning her face up to the sunlight, the tattoo of her heartbeat calming as she stared through the canopy to the sky, playing hide-and-seek beyond. And so would you if you weren't so serious all the time. The air in the quiet place shifted, thickening with the truth, that they were not ordinary children, thirteen and without care. Care was how they survived. Seriousness was how they survived. She didn't want that now, not while the last of the summer butterflies danced in rays of light above, filling the whole place with magic that kept the worst at bay. So she changed the subject. Tell me about it. He didn't ask her to clarify. He didn't need to. Again? Again. He swiveled around, and she moved her skirts so he could lie next to her, as he had dozens of times before, hundreds of them. Once he was settled on his back, his hands stacked behind his head, he spoke to the canopy. It's never quiet there. Because of the carts on the cobblestones. He nodded. The wooden wheels make a racket, but it's more than that. It's the shouts from the taverns and the hawkers in the market square, the dogs barking in the warehouses, the brawls in the streets. I used to stand on the roof of the place I lived and bet on the brawls. That's why you're so good at fighting. He lifted a shoulder in a tiny shrug. I always thought it would be the best way to help my ma. Until... He trailed off, but she heard the rest. Until she'd taken ill, and the Duke had dangled a title and a fortune in front of a son, who would have done anything to help. She turned to look at him, his face drawn tight, resolutely staring up at the sky, jaw set. Tell me about the cursing, she prodded. He let out a little surprised laugh. A riot of foul language, you like that bit. I didn't even know cursing existed before you three. Boys who came into her life like a riot themselves, rough and tumble and foul-mouthed and wonderful. Before Devil, you mean? Devil, christened Devon, one of his two half-brothers raised in a boy's orphanage and with a mouth to prove it. He's proved very useful. Yes, the cursing, especially on the docks. No one swears like a sailor. Tell me the best one you've ever had. He cut her a sly look. No. She'd ask Devil later. Tell me about the rain. It's London. It rains all the time. She nudged him with her shoulder. Tell me the good bit. He smiled, and she matched it, loving the way he humoured her. The rain turns the stones on the street slick and shiny. And at night it turns them gold because of the lights from the taverns, she filled in. Not just the taverns, the theatres and Drury Lane... The lamps that hang outside the bawdy houses. Bawdy houses, where his mother had landed after the Duke had refused to keep her when she'd chosen to have his son. Where that son had been born, 
to keep the dark at bay, she said softly. The dark ain't so bad, he said. It's just that the people in it haven't a choice but to fight for what they need. And do they get it, what they need? No, they don't get what they need and not what they deserve neither. She paused, then whispered to the canopy like it really was magic. But we're going to change all that. She didn't miss the we, not just him, all of them, a foursome that had made a pact when the boys had been brought here for this mad competition. Whoever won would keep them all safe, and then they'd escape this place that had imprisoned them all in a battle of wits and weapons that would give his father what the older man wanted, an heir worthy of a dukedom. Once you a duke, she said softly. He turned to look at her. Once one of us is duke. She shook her head, meeting his glittering amber gaze. So like his brothers, so like his father's. You're going to win. He watched her for a long moment and said, How do you know? She pressed her lips together. I just know. The old duke's machinations grew more challenging by the day. Devil was like his name, too much fire and fury. And wit, he was too small, too kind. And if I don't want it, a preposterous idea. Of course you want it. It should be yours. She couldn't help the little wild laugh. Girls don't get to be dukes. And here you are, an heir, nonetheless. But she wasn't. Not really. She was the product of her mother's extramarital affair, a gamble designed to deliver a bastard heir to a monstrous husband, forever tainting his precious familial line, the only thing he'd ever cared for. But instead of a boy, the Duchess had produced a girl, and so she was not heir. She was a placeholder, a bookmark in an ancient copy of Burke's Peerage, and they all knew it. She ignored the words and said, It doesn't matter. And it didn't. Ewan would win, he would become Duke, and it would change everything. He watched her for a long moment. When I'm Duke, then... The words were a whisper, as though if he spoke them in truth, he'd curse them all. When I am Duke, I shall keep us all safe, us and all of the garden. I shall take his money, his power, his name, and I shall walk away and never look back. The words circled around them, reverberating off the trees for a long moment before he corrected himself. Not his name, he whispered. Yours? Robert Matthew Carrick, Earl Sumner, heir to the Dukedom of Marwick. She ignored the thread of emotion winding through her and lightened her tone. You might as well have the name. It's proper new. I've never used it. She might have been baptised the heir, but she didn't have access to the name. Over the years, when she'd been anything at all, she'd been girl, the girl, or young lady, once, for a heartbeat when she was eight, there was a housemaid who called her Love, and she'd rather enjoyed that. But the maid had left after a few months, and the girl had been back to being nobody. Until they'd arrived, a trio of boys who saw her, and this one, who seemed not only to see her, but also to understand her, and they called her a hundred things, run for the way she tore across the fields, and red for the flame in her hair, and riot for the way she fumed at their father. And she answered to all of them, knowing that none was her name, but not caring so much once they'd arrived, because maybe they were enough.
because to them, she was not nobody. I'm sorry, he whispered. He meant it. To him, she was somebody. They stayed that way for a heartbeat, gazes locked, truth like a blanket around them, until he cleared his throat and looked away, breaking the connection and rolling onto his back, returning his attention to the trees above and saying, Anyway, my mum used to say she loved the rain, because it was the only time she ever saw jewels in Covent Garden. Promise to take me when you leave, she whispered into the quiet. His lips set into a firm line, his promise written in the lines of his face, older than it should be, younger than it would have to become. He nodded once, firm, certain. And I'll make sure you have jewels. She rolled onto her own back, her skirts haphazard in the grass. See that you do, she jested. And gold thread for all my gowns. I shall keep you in spools of it. Yes, please, she said. And a lady's maid with a particular skill for hair. You're very demanding for a country girl, he teased. She turned a grin on him. I've had a lifetime to prepare my requirements. Do you think you're ready for London, country girl? The smile faded into a mock scowl. I think I shall do just fine, city boy. He laughed, and the rare sound filled the space around them, warming her. And in that moment, something happened. Something strange and unsettling and wonderful and weird. That sound, like nothing in the wide world, unlocked her. Suddenly, she could feel him. Not simply the warmth of him along her side, where they touched from shoulder to hip. Not only the place where his elbow rested beside her ear. Not just the feel of his touch and her curls as he extracted a leaf from them. All of him. The even rise and fall of his breath. His sure stillness. And that laugh, his laugh. Whatever happens, promise you won't forget me, she said quietly. I shan't be able to. We'll be together. She shook her head. People leave. His brow furrowed, and she could hear the force in his words. I don't. I won't. She nodded. But still. Sometimes you don't choose it. Sometimes people just... His gaze softened with understanding, and he heard the reference to her mother in the trail of her words. He rolled toward her, and they were facing each other now, cheeks on their bent arms, close enough for secrets. She would have stayed if she could, he said firmly. You don't know that, she whispered, hating the sting of the words behind the bridge of her nose. I was born and she died, and she left me with a man who is not my father, who gave me a name that is not my own, and I'll never know what would have happened if she'd lived. I'll never know if... He waited, ever patient, as though he would wait for her for a lifetime. I'll never know if she would have loved me. She would have loved you. The answer was instant. She shook her head, closing her eyes, wanting to believe him. She didn't even name me. She would have. She would have named you, and it would have been something beautiful. The certainty in his words had her meeting his gaze, sure and unyielding. Not Robert, then. He didn't smile, didn't laugh. She would have named you for what you were, for what you deserved. She would have given you the title. Understanding dawned. And then he whispered, 
just as I would do. Everything stopped. The rustle of leaves in the canopy, the shouts of his brothers in the stream beyond, the slow creep of the afternoon. And she knew, in that moment, that he was about to give her a gift that she never imagined she'd receive. She smiled at him, her heart pounding in her chest. Tell me. She wanted it on his lips, in his voice, in her ears. She wanted it from him, knowing it would make it impossible for her to ever forget him, even after he left her behind. He gave it to her. Grace. Chapter 2 London, Autumn, 1837 To Dahlia! A raucous cheer rose in reply to the shout, the crush of people in the central room of 72 Shelton Street, a high-end club and the best-kept secret of London's smartest, savviest, most scandalous women, turning in unison to toast its proprietress. The woman known as Dahlia stilled at the bottom of the central staircase, taking in the massive space, already packed with club members and guests despite the early hour. She offered the assembly a wide, glittering smile. Drink up, my lovelies, you've a night to remember ahead of you. Or oh, to forget, came a boisterous retort from the far end of the room. Dahlia recognised the voice instantly as that of one of London's merriest widows, a marchioness who had invested in 72 Shelton Street from the earliest days and loved it more than her own home. Here, a merry marchioness was afforded the privacy she never received in Grosvenor Square. Her lovers, too, received that privacy. The masked crowd laughed in unison, and Dahlia was freed from their collective attention, just long enough for her lieutenant, Zeva, to appear at her side. The tall, willowy, dark-haired beauty had been with her since the earliest days of the club and managed the ins and outs of the membership, ensuring that whatever they wished was theirs for the taking. Already a crush, Zeva said. Dahlia checked the watch at her waist. About to be more of one. It was early, just past eleven, much of London only now able to sneak away from their boring dinners and dances, making their excuses with megrims and delicate constitutions. Dahlia smirked at the thought, knowing the way the club's membership used the perceived weakness of the fairer sex to take what they wished beneath the notice of society. They would claim that weakness and play to it, all while summoning their coachmen to the rear exits of their homes, while changing from their respectable fashions to something more exciting, while peeling off the masks they wore in their world and donning different ones, different names, different desires, whatever they wished out of Mayfair. Soon they would arrive, filling 72 Shelton Street to the gills to revel in what the club could provide on any given night of the year, companionship, pleasure and power, and specifically for what it delivered on the third Thursday of every month, when women from across London and the world were welcome to explore their deepest desires. The standing event, known only as Dominion, was part masked ball, part wild revelry, part casino and entirely confidential, designed to provide club membership and trusted companions with an evening, catering entirely to their pleasure, whatever that pleasure might be. Dominion had a single driving purpose, 
Ladies' Choice. There was nothing Dahlia liked more than providing women access to their pleasure. The fairer sex was not treated fairly in the slightest, and her club was built to change that. Since arriving in London 20 years earlier, she had made money in scores of ways. She'd scalloried in dingy pubs and dank theatres. She'd minced meat in pie shops and bent metal into spoons, and never for more than a penny or two for the work. She'd quickly discovered that daytime work didn't pay. Which was fine with her, she'd never been suited to daytime work. After chamber pots and meat pies turned her stomach and metalwork left her palms sliced to ribbons, she'd found a job as a flower girl, racing to empty a basket of fast-wilting posies before dark. She'd lasted two days before a hawker in the Covent Garden market had seen her keen eye for a customer and offered her work selling fruit. That had lasted less than a week, until he'd backhanded her for accidentally dropping a bright red apple in the sawdust. When she'd come to her feet, she'd put him into the sawdust himself, before sprinting from the market, three apples in her skirts, worth more than her pay for a week. But the event had been surprising enough to attract the attention of one of the garden's biggest fight men. Digger Knight had been on a constant hunt for tall girls with pretty faces and powerful fists. Brutes are one thing, he used to say, but the bells win the crowd. Dahlia turned out to be both. She'd been taught well. Fighting wasn't daytime work, it was nighttime work, and it paid like it. It paid well, and it felt better especially for a girl from nowhere who was full of betrayal and anger. She didn't mind the sting of the blows, and she quickly found her sea legs from the dizziness that came the morning after a bout. And once she learned how to see a blow coming and how to avoid the ones that would do real damage, she never looked back. Turning her back on flowers and fruit, Dahlia sold her fists instead, in fair fights and dirty ones, and when she'd seen the kind of money that the latter could earn her, she sold her hair to a wig maker in Mayfair, who shopped the garden wholesale. Long hair was weakness, and bad for business for a bare-knuckle girl. The short-haired, long-legged, nearly 15-year-old had become a legend in Covent Garden's darkest corners. A girl with a lean, sinewy form, and somehow a punch like oak whom no man wished to meet on a darkened street, especially when flanked by the two boys who came with her, who fought with a young, feral rage that brought ruin to anyone who faced it. Together, they made money hands over those fists, building an empire. Dahlia and those boys, who quickly became men, her brothers in heart and soul, if not in blood, the bare-knuckle bastards, and the trio sold their fists until they no longer had to until, eventually, they were unbeatable, unbreakable, royal. And only then did Queen Dahlia build her castle and claim her place, no longer in the business of flowers or apples or hair or fights. And to her subjects, she offered a single magnificent thing, choice. Not the kind she'd been afforded, lesser of multiple evils, but the kind that let women have access to their dreams. Fantasies and pleasure made good. What women wanted, Dahlia provided, and dominion was her celebration. You're dressed for the occasion, I see, Zephyr said. 
Did I? Talia replied with a raised brow. The scarlet corset she wore above perfectly fitted black trousers skimmed her lush curves beneath a long, elaborately embroidered topcoat in black and gold, lined with a rich golden silk. She rarely wore skirts, finding the freedom of trousers more useful while working, not to mention a valuable reminder of her role as proprietress of one of London's best-kept secrets and queen of Covent Garden. Her lieutenant slid her a look. Coy does not become you. I know where you've been for the last four days, and you haven't been wearing velvet and silk. A raucous cheer came from the roulette wheel nearby, saving Dahlia from a reply. She turned to watch the crowd, taking in the wide, delighted smile of a masked woman, anonymous to all but the owner of the club, as she pulled Thomas, her companion for the evening, in for a celebratory kiss. Thomas was nothing if not a willing participant, and the embrace ended to whistles and huzzas. No one would believe that to all of Mayfair, she was a shelf-bound wallflower who lost her voice with men. Masks were infinite power when they were chosen. The lady is running hot, Dahlia asked. Third win in a row. Of course, Seva was keeping track. And Thomas isn't exactly a cooling influence. Dahlia offered a half-smile. Nothing escapes your notice. You pay me very well for that to be the case. I notice everything, the other woman said, including your whereabouts. Dahlia looked to her factotum and friend and said quietly, Not tonight. Seva had more to say but kept quiet. Instead, she waved a hand in the direction of the far end of the room, where a collection of masked women stood huddled in private discussion. The vote will fail tomorrow. The women were aristocratic wives, most legions smarter than their husbands, and all as, or far more qualified to hold seat in the House of Lords. Lacking the proper robes did not keep the ladies from legislating, however, and when they did, they did it here, in private quarters, beneath the notice of Mayfair. Dahlia turned a satisfied look on Zephyr. The vote would make prostitution and other forms of sex work illegal in Britain. Dahlia had spent the last three weeks convincing the wives in question that this was a vote in which they and their husbands should take interest and ensure did not pass. Good. It's bad for women and poor women the most. It was bad for Covent Garden, and she wouldn't have it. So is the rest of the world, Zeva said, dry as sand. Have you got a bill to pass for that? Give it time, Dahlia replied as they passed through the room to a long hallway where several couples were taking advantage of the darkness. Nothing moves as slowly as Parliament. Seva gave a little huff of laughter behind her. You and I both know there's nothing you love more than manipulating Parliament. They should give you a seat. The corridor opened up on a large, inviting space filled with revelers, a small band of musicians at one end, playing a rousing tune for the collected audience, many of whom danced with abandon, no mincing steps, no careful space between couples, no discerning eyes watching for scandal. Or, rather, if they were watching, it was for enjoyment and not censure. The duo wove through the crowd along the edges of the room, past a sinewy man who winked at them, as the woman in his arms stroked over his muscled chest, which looked as though it might burst the seams of his topcoat. Oscar, another employee. His work, the lady's pleasure. A scant handful of the men in attendance were not employees, 
each having been properly vetted beforehand, checked and rechecked via Dahlia's far-reaching network, made up of businesswomen, aristocrats, politicians' wives and a dozen women who knew and wielded the most complex of power, information. The orchestra rested as a songstress moved to the centre of the raised stage where they sat, a young black woman whose voice rose like heaven, big enough to echo around the room, bringing the dancers to an out-of-breath standstill as she trilled and scaled in a bright aria that would bring down any house on Drury Lane. A collection of awed gasps sounded around the room. Dahlia! Dahlia turned to face a woman in brilliant green, elaborate mask to match. Nastasia Kritikos was a legendary Greek opera singer, one who had herself brought down houses across Europe. With a warm embrace, she nodded to the stage. This girl, where did you find her? Eve. A smile played across Dahlia's lips. In the market square, singing for supper. A dark brow rose in amusement. Is that not what she does tonight? Tonight she sings for you, old friend. It was the truth. The young woman sang for access to dominion, where a handful of other talented singers had been catapulted to stardom. Nastasia cast a discerning eye at the stage, where Eve sang an impossible run of notes. That was your specialty, wasn't it, Dahlia said. The other woman cut her a look. Is my specialty. I wouldn't call hers perfect. Dahlia gave her a little knowing smile. It was perfect, and they both knew it. With an enormous sigh, the diva waved a hand in the air. Tell her to come see me tomorrow. I'll introduce her to some people. The girl would be treading the boards before she knew it. Your soft-hearted Nastasia. Brown eyes glittered behind a green mask. If you tell anyone, I'll have this place burned to the ground. Your secret is safe with me, Dahlia grinned. Peter has been asking for you. It was the truth. Besides being a proper London celebrity, Nastasia was also a coveted prize among the men in the club. The older woman preened. Of course he has. I suppose I can spare a few hours. Dahlia laughed and nodded to Zeva. We'll find him for you then. That sorted, she pushed forward through the crowd that had collected to listen to the soon-to-be-famous songstress to a small antechamber where pharaoh games routinely became heated. She could feel the excitement in the air, and she drank it in, and the power that came with it. London's most powerful women collected here for their own pleasure, and all because of her. We'll have to find a new singer, Seva grumbled as they weaved through the gamers. Eve doesn't want to be the downstairs entertainment at our bacchanals forever. We could keep them longer than a month. She's too talented for us. You're the one with the soft heart, came the retort. The explosion. Dahlia slowed at the snippet of conversation nearby, her gaze meeting that of a maid, delivering a tray of champagne to the gossiping group. A barely there nod indicated that the other woman was also listening. She was paid to and well. Still, Dahlia lingered. Two of them, I heard, came a reply full of scandalized delight. Dahlia resisted the urge to scowl. I heard they decimated the docks. Yes, and imagine only two dead. A miracle.
The words were hushed as though the woman actually believed it. Were any injured? The news said five. Six, she thought, gritting her teeth, her heart beginning to pound. You're staring, Seva said softly, the words pulling Dahlia away from the conversation. What more was there to learn? She'd been there mere minutes after the explosion. She knew the count. She slid her gaze past Seva and over the crowd to a small door, barely there at the other end of the room. The seams of it hidden in the deep sapphire wall coverings shot through with silver. Even the members who had seen staff use it forgot the unassuming opening before it had been snicked shut, thinking whatever behind it far less interesting than what was in front of it. Sever knew the truth, though. That door opened to a back staircase, running up to private rooms and down into the tunnels beneath the club. It was one of a half dozen installed around 72 Shelton Street, but the only one that led to a private hallway on the fourth floor, concealed behind a false wall, which only three staff members knew existed. Dahlia ignored the keen itch to disappear through it. It's important we understand what the city thinks about that explosion. They think the bare-knuckle bastards lost two lading men, a hold full of cargo and a ship, and that your brother's lady was nearly killed. A pause, then appointed. And they're right. Talia ignored the words. Seven knew when the battle wasn't to be won. And what shall I say to them? Dahlia slid her a look. Who? The other woman lifted her chin in the direction of the labyrinth of rooms through which they'd come. Your brothers, what would you like me to tell them? Dahlia swore softly and cast a look over the shadowed crowd, packed several deep. By the entrance to the room, a notorious countess finished a filthy joke for a collection of admirers. The carrots go in the rear garden, darling. Peals of delighted laughter rang out, and Dahlia turned back to Zeva. Christ, they're not here, are they? No, but we can't keep them out forever. We can try. They've a point. Dahlia cut the other woman off with a sharp look and a sharper retort. You let me worry about them. Seva lifted her chin toward the hidden door and the stairs beyond. And what of that? A hot wash came over Dahlia, something that might have been a blush if she were the kind of woman who blushed. She ignored it and the pounding of her heart. You let me worry about that, too. A single black brow rose above Zeva's dark eyes, indicating that she had legions more to say. Instead, she nodded once. Then I shall hold the floor. She turned away and pushed back through the crowd, leaving Dahlia alone. Alone to press the hidden panel in the door, to activate the latch and to close it tight behind her, shutting out the cacophony of sound beyond. Alone to climb the narrow stairs with quiet, steady rhythm, a rhythm at odds with the increasing pace of her heart as she passed the second floor, the third, Alone, to count the doors in the fourth floor hallway. One, two, three. Alone, to open the fourth door on the left and close it behind her, cloaking herself in darkness thick enough to erase the wild party below. The world distilling to nothing but the room, its single window looking out over the Covent Garden rooftops, and its sparse furnishings, a small table, a rigid chair, a single bed, 
alone in that room, alone with the man unconscious in that bed.